So we're continuing to go through these big stories, and somehow we have only two left, which means Christmas is uncomfortably close. Uh, Are you feeling that too? It's like less than six weeks away, something ridiculous. Uh, The next two weeks, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And so I thought it would be helpful to get a little bit of an overview of what that book is. This week will be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. Next week will be Daniel and the lion's den. The book of Daniel takes place during the Babylonian captivity, the exile. The Babylonian empire has come in and conquered the remaining two tribes of Judah in the south. They've destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it, and they've carted off all the important people, all the aristocracy, the educated, the business people. They've left only the peasants behind, and they brought everyone else out in exile into Babylon. It was a dark season in the nation's history, not only because they had to deal intellectually and emotionally and spiritually with the destruction of Jerusalem, with the raising of the temple completely, and with the fact that God did not save them, but also because they had to learn now what it was to live as Jews in exile, to live in a foreign land, to worship their God now amongst other people without all of the structures of Israel to help support and encourage that worship. And because of that, this book is an incredibly important book for us too. We too live in exile. We are, as Paul has said, citizens of heaven. As Peter has said, strangers and foreigners, aliens in the world itself. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. So how is it that we remain faithful to our God in the midst of incredible pressure to blend in to the crowds around us and to go with the flow? Well, the book of Daniel has quite a bit to say about that. Amongst those sent off into exile were four young men from the royal family of David. Daniel, whom the book gets its name, and three of his friends. Their Babylonian names become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four were wise and educated, capable administrators, so they were given roles within the royal palace of Babylon. And yet in those roles, they had constantly to juggle these same questions. So what does it look like to be faithful in exile? Let's see. As we open the scriptures together, do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, 
lyre, trigun, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not worship your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? And you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king? Let him deliver us. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics and trousers, their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound, into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly, he said to his counselors, Was it not three men 
that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. He replied, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the flame furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! Come here! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruins, for there is no other God who's able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Daniel 3, all of it. If you want to keep your Bibles open or find it to be able to follow along, we'll look back as we go. I want to spend our time this morning looking at two of the central images in this story. The statue and the furnace. I want to start with the statue because we have to understand what the statue is if we want to understand what the challenge is to the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue, commands everyone to worship it. When the band plays, they don't. They get ratted out by some rivals in the administration. They're dragged before Nebuchadnezzar. They again refuse to worship the statue, and they're thrown into the furnace. For us to understand the story, for us to learn what we need to learn about what it means to live faithfully in exile, we're going to have to understand what that statue is. It was described in verse 1 as 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, made of gold and constructed on the plains of Dura. Now, a cubit's not a common measurement for us, but it's about 18 inches, which means this statue is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. To give you a frame of reference, anybody know how tall the sanctuary is? Not inside, just to the ceiling, but if you go outside and look up all the way to the top of the weather vane, you know how tall that is? Any guesses? What? 90? 60? It's 80, give or take a couple inches. 80 feet tall. So go outside, look up, imagine 10 feet taller and only 9 feet wide. That's this statue. And gold. Probably not pure gold, but probably plated in gold. Still an impressive and huge statue. An engineering marvel, too, that it would stand with such skinny proportions. But what was this tall, golden statue? You might assume it's a god of some sort, right? Like the golden calf in Exodus. It's a false god, an idol set up to be worshipped. We might assume it's Bel, 
the main god of the Babylonians at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar has set up this statue to please his god, to honor him maybe for a victory in battle, and to force everyone to worship. It wasn't unheard of. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Colossus of Rhodes, a statue that stood about 110 feet high at the mouth of the harbor in the city of Rhodes, a figure of the god Helios, the sun god, after a victory that Rhodes had won in battle. The thing is, the story doesn't actually say anything about this being a god. It doesn't say it's a false god. And in fact, the charge against them is that Nebuchadnezzar, they don't worship your gods and they don't worship the statue that you've set up. So maybe we can assume that it's actually Nebuchadnezzar himself as a statue, that he's built this massive statue of himself and commanded everyone to bow down and worship it. Maybe he wanted to make sure he was remembered forever that his military victories were honored, that his massive empire, his limitless power were known and recognized far and wide. I remember the images of the statues of Saddam Hussein being pulled down in Iraq after our army came in. Maybe he was like that, or one of the Roman Caesars who began to imagine himself as God and command the worship of the people. Maybe that's it. But the story doesn't actually say that either. It's clear about 400 times that Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue, but never anything about the statue being an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you want to know what I think it is? It's just a hunch. It's a guess. I think it's a statue from chapter 2. If you back up a chapter, um, flip a page over in your Bibles, King Nebuchadnezzar, in the second year of his reign, has a deeply troubling dream. He calls his magicians and all of his wise men in and asks them to tell him the dream and its interpretation, and no one can. So he commands them all to be killed. Daniel steps in at the last moment and says, I'll do it, and save all their lives. He tells them the dream. It was a dream where Nebuchadnezzar saw a massive statue with a head of gold with uh, arms and a chest of silver, with a middle section and thighs of bronze, with legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And in the dream, a stone is cut and hurled at the statue. It hits the feet. The whole thing crumbles, becomes like chaff, blows away, and it's as if it were never there. But the stone becomes a mountain that can never be moved. Nebuchadnezzar, or, uh, Daniel says, this is what your dream means. Babylon is the golden head and its empire. There will be four empires that come after it. Until the kingdom of God arises, God comes and wipes these kingdoms off the face of the earth, establishing God's own kingdom that will never end in the midst of the world. And at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed that he calls Daniel's God the God of gods, the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. And he actually gives Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a promotion because of this. Now, there are some who think that maybe that dream gave Nebuchadnezzar an idea. That even though he comes around to admit that God is God at the end of it, maybe it was that dream that gave him an idea for a massive statue. Maybe Babylon could not just be the head, but the whole thing 
Why couldn't Babylon be the kingdom that would last throughout all eternity? Why couldn't it be the greatest empire in the history of the world? I think the statue is a symbol of the nation as it exalts itself up to the ultimate place. We should remember one of our earliest stories in Genesis. It takes place in Babel, not Babylon, and on the plain of Shinar, not the plain of Dura, but still the people of God come from every nation and tribe and seek to build together a tower to heaven to exalt themselves into the place of the gods. I think that the statue is a symbol of Babylon itself, of its power, its way of life, of its glory and its greatness, and that this is what Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone to worship. But you know what? It doesn't actually say that either. We could go down any of these paths and probably a couple other ones. We could have a long conversation this morning about worshiping false gods, We could talk about the danger of propping up a leader of a nation as though they are a savior and the tendency of kings to take and usurp the place of God. We could go on and on about the dangers and perils of nationalism and how most of us were born into the bloodiest century in the history of humanity and that that wasn't because of religions, but nationalism. Nations demanding ultimate allegiance and not just nations named Germany and Japan. We could talk about the problems of pluralism and tolerance and the false humility of saying, worship whatever you want, just do it in your private sphere, and when you come into the public one, check your truth claims at the door. Worship what you want at home, but when you come outside, bow down to the statue. We could go down any of those paths after reading Daniel 3, because the problem underlying every single one of them is the same. It's this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's those pesky first two commandments. And they're not just talking about other religions with figures we can bow down to in worship. The command is to place nothing else higher than and before God. Nothing. Despite our tendency to elevate things, even good things, into God's place, nothing shall come before God. No other gods before me. An image of nothing in heaven above, nothing on the earth beneath, nothing in the seas below, nothing. Not work. Not sports, not success, not security, not comfort, not nation, not economy, not family, nothing. And as people who live in exile, this is really difficult. It's actually not even as easy as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Though we don't have an execution threat over our heads, It's not so easily parsed out in our world. It's not worship God over here or bow down to that statue over there. The false gods of our day are far more subtle and so much more pervasive. But we live in a foreign land as Christians. We are citizens of heaven. 
And yet this foreign land and its ways so easily become ingrained within us too until we find ourselves bowing down to various altars and sacrificing parts of ourselves without even thinking. So as we seek to live in the world but not of it, let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be our guides because they find somehow a way to walk on a razor's edge. On the one hand, they don't participate. right? They remain faithful to their God and they're diligent enough to see this false God for what it is and so they endure whatever consequences come by not accommodating to it. But on the other hand, they don't make a huge deal about it. They're not picketing the statue. They don't start a social media campaign. They're not taking up arms. They don't unplug from society completely and act as though it's not there. They work for the government, after all. And they're actually really nice about their dissent. Did you notice that? We don't need to present a defense for ourselves, O Nebuchadnezzar. If God rescues us, great. Even if God doesn't, we're not worshiping your gods and we're not worshiping the statue. We're not having the conversation. They're in the world. They're engaged. They're part of the culture. But they're not of the world. They know who they are. They know who their God is. They know what God requires of them. And they're not going to compromise it. It's a really difficult place to stand. And as we see, it has some pretty serious consequences for them. Which leads us to the second thing for this morning, the furnace. The furnace is Nebuchadnezzar's threat. If you don't bow down to the statue, we'll throw you into the fiery furnace. In our own day, as we hear of these Jewish men thrown into a furnace, we can't help but think of six million others who weren't miraculously saved from the fiery furnace. And it's those furnaces of this world that have led so many to walk away from the God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cling to. Because how could a God who is loving and all-powerful allow such things to go on? How could such senseless violence and suffering exist if a God like ours actually existed? Well, let's see what happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. They're not saved from it. They're tossed in. And yet almost immediately, Nebuchadnezzar notices something. He's astonished. He rises up quickly. He must have some vantage point into the furnace from where he's sitting. And he asks those with him, Was it not three men we threw into the furnace? Bound? And they answered, True, O king. He replied, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the fourth has the appearance of a god. What's going on? You heard it earlier in Isaiah 43. It was the promise of grace we heard this morning. The promise of God spoken also into the Babylonian exile in Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Who is that in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who is the fourth man? It's God. God who is there with them in the furnace. See how amazing this is. God doesn't rescue them out of the furnace. God joins them in it. And years later, when God takes on flesh and lives among us, we find this strange story as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the crucifixion, and as he prays, he's sweating. And he's sweating so profusely that the sweat is falling like drops of blood to the ground. Why is he sweating? Because he's looking into the furnace. Because he's looking into the ultimate furnace, the furnace he's about to enter into on the cross to take on all of the punishment, the punishment that was ours because of our wickedness, because of our selfishness, because of our indifference, all the punishment we deserved he takes on. He takes on all the suffering and all the injustice of the world. He takes all of it on and joins us there. He comes into the furnace with us in order to preserve us through it. Not to rescue us out of it, but to carry us through. And here's why that's so remarkable. Because no other religion talks about a God that suffers. No other religion. Because it makes no sense. How and why would a God suffer? That's one of the benefits of being a God. And yet a God that never suffers could never truly love us either. In a world of suffering like ours, a God who doesn't enter into that suffering alongside us does not love us. And King Nebuchadnezzar sees as much. He's amazed. And he's amazed by the way that God saves them. He says, no other God is able to deliver in this way. No God saves like this. See, the question isn't, how could a God who's all-powerful and loving exist in a world of suffering like ours? The question is, in a world of suffering like ours, how could any powerful God be all-loving unless that God enters into the suffering with us? No God saves like this. No other God enters into the furnace, climbs in beside us to hold us, to carry us, to save us, not from the flames, but through them. There is no God like our God, which means there is no God so worthy of our praise, which is why God can command no other God before me. Let's pray. Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you that we are yours, that you are our God, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior, and that you hold us, that you love us, that you save us, and that you will one day gather us all to yourself, that you will restore us fully, that you will make us new and whole again erasing all the damage of the furnaces of our lives. And that on that day, people will gather from every nation and language and people with instruments and music from every culture under the sun. But they will not gather to worship Babylon under the threat of death, 
but to worship you, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you are the God who comes down to us to save us and to bring us home. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.